uh, excited. This is a 4th of July weekend, as you probably heard, and uh, our dog is now in therapy as a result of all the booming that's been going on around. And uh, we have a wonderful passage that I want to read for us this morning. It's a passage that comes out of the book of Romans. We've been in a series called Rome, called uh, Living Free, and uh, we were in Set Free from Romans 1 through 11, and now in chapters 12 to the end of the book, chapter 16, where we want to see this theme of living free in a dark world. Let me read the text for us as we set it up this morning. It's just a few passages, a few verses, four verses as a matter of fact, in Romans 13, 11 through 14. Let me read what Paul wrote to the Roman citizens here a couple of thousand years ago. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And so God is calling us to a specific kind of way of life and to help us to understand it. And because it's the 4th of July, I wanted to celebrate with light. And so this is a very spectacular. You cannot buy these sparklers in today's economy. But uh, we want to celebrate who Christ is. And uh, I probably should have lit one of these before I got up here in front of all of you as you watch me try to light something that... There you go. So isn't that very pretty? Our daughter used these things, but this is actually from Chelsea. Notice how it becomes even more powerful when it gets dark in the room. Notice how light is much lighter, much more impactful when there's darkness around. Can you imagine what it would be like if all of us in this room had one of these sparklers? We'd really be lighting up the darkness. In fact, the darkness would begin to go away. The darkness would subside. We wouldn't be aware of the darkness because the light would be overcoming the darkness that is out there. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 this morning is calling us to put on the armor of light, that we would be light in a dark world. So I want us to talk about what it means to live free living free in a darkened world. And so I'm going to throw this out to one of you. You can catch it. Actually, I won't do that. Oops. Safety first. Getting back to the text. Now that I have your attention, hopefully. I encourage you to use the outline that is available for you as we go through this text this morning. It's in the bulletin there. On the back side, there's some, I think, fascinating verses that has to do with the end times and what God would have us to live our lives. And the first thing that I wanted us to realize and how to live free in a dark world, there are three things on the outline. The first is this. We need to be alert to the needs and the issues of the world because the end is coming. That's what he's talking about in verse 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken. And I wanted to emphasize, do this knowing the time. It's important that you and I know the time or the times. We are aware of the circumstances that are around us. I'm very familiar with the fact that most people today, especially maybe at a certain age category, 
are not reading newspapers, not listening to the news, not aware of a lot of the things that are taking place. In fact, there's somewhat of a little bit of of a lack of understanding of even historical things that have occurred. And what God is calling us is to know the times. Know the times that it is already the hour for you to wake from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. In other words, the end of the times is coming. It is nearer. And the older any of us gets, the nearer the end time is anyways, right? We're not going to stretch beyond a certain time. We all live a lifespan, so we're all getting closer to the end of the times. But I think Paul also references the fact that Christ could return sooner. He wrote that to the first Thessalonians. He says, now as to the times and the epics. He says, I want you to know of the times and the epics. I want you to have an awareness of what God is doing in the world today. Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Obviously, Paul had a lot of prophecy conferences with Thessalonians. They were aware of the end times. It was not a foreign concept to them. So they had an awareness of the times and the epics. He didn't need to write anything, but he went ahead and wrote this. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is a span of time that includes the seven years of tribulation into the millennial kingdom. It is that end times of circumstances where Christ is coming back to establish his kingdom on earth. So that is the day of the Lord. It will come just like a thief in the night. How does a thief come when we don't expect it? And so while they are saying peace and safety, so there is this terrible lack of awareness of the people in the end times. They're saying peace and safety. They don't realize the end times are now upon them like a thief coming in the night. It's like sleeping at night and suddenly there's a thief in your room. You're totally unaware, caught off guard. There's a thief walking around in your bedroom and there you are lying in bed not sure what to do. That is the complete unawareness of the circumstances that are suddenly now here and I don't know what to do about it. Paul says, I don't want you to be like that. I want you to know what's happening. And so there are people who are unaware saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. He says, don't be like that. Have an awareness of the times and the epics. Then he continues, but you brethren are not in darkness. And that's because we should be light. The day should overtake you like a thief for you are all sons of light and sons of day. When we live with the armor of light, we have an awareness of what God is doing. We have a sensitivity of His motion. We have an understanding of how biblical worldview continues to really integrate into the society that is around us. We're not unaware. We see things in the Mideast. We see things around the world. We see cataclysmic things occurring. We have an understanding that God is working. I can't explain it. I can't understand it. You shouldn't play... pray for a hurricane to be diverted from certain locations on the east coast like some have on the tv but we have an awareness of those things that god is calling us to that's why the sons of issachar were so noted because the sons of issachar in the old testament were men who understood the times and when you understand the times you have knowledge of what we should do as they had knowledge of what israel should do we should have an awareness of what is going on For example, because of the 4th of July, we love our country. We're thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy. You go back to Washington, D.C. I was back there just a few weeks ago. And here's the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol building. You go back in time to the early days when the pilgrims were beginning to come to America. One of the things that was happening is King James I was beginning to restrict freedoms of those early Christians, those pilgrims, those separatists who didn't want to conform to what government was telling them. That King James I passed and enforced a law 
that unless you worshipped in the Church of England, and if you didn't worship in the Church of England for 40 days, you would be thrown into prison. You cannot have your own worship service here. You can't have another person doing that. You cannot exercise your own freedom of religion independent of the Church of England. So the government from the top down was telling the Christians how and where and what they should worship. As a result of that, the Puritans said, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to try to infiltrate that darkness and try to change it. They were separatists. The pilgrims, as they became known as, based on Hebrews chapter 11, the pilgrims were those that then went out and said, we are not going to be party to this government top-down restriction upon us. We see some of that going on today. There is a Supreme Court justice uh, decision that was passed down that kind of got overshadowed by the Hobby Lobby thing, and hopefully you are aware of the times. And the Supreme Court has determined that therapists cannot tell minors who have homosexual desires that they can no longer have those sexual desires. A therapist cannot help a minor under 18 have therapy to overcome those struggles. It's against the law. If you're a professional licensed therapist, you can lose your license if you provide therapy for those who are minors who want to overcome that urge. And that case was brought because a, a, a man was bringing a case for minors who wanted therapy like that. And then the judges said, no, they cannot be set free. That's a top-down restriction withholding from us our exercise of faith to help those who want to overcome a sinful passion. That's part of what we're experiencing today. Of course, the Hobby Lobby is the good news. Hobby Lobby has uh, uh, fought so that they did not have to have four pills that could kill babies in the womb. And they allowed the other 16 contraceptives to be uh, funded by their company. But they didn't want those four uh, pills or devices that would cause abortions to be something that they would pay for. And hopefully you're aware that over this last week, five of the Supreme Court justices agree with Hobby Lobby and now have given them freedom to exercise their personal faith as a family-owned operation, a Christian organization, so they don't be restricted. But we were with one judge pivoting back and forth within one judge of the Supreme Court that could have gone the other way and Hobby Lobby could no longer exercise its faith in terms of pro-life biblical position so that they could have that freedom to do so. With one judge, one judge can sway that. So as you and I elect those we put in the White House, that White House is going to determine who's in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court's going to determine how much freedom you and I continue to have. Well, back in the first century, or in the early days of the 1600s, the King James was, was top-down heavy on his government upon the Christians, not allowing them to exercise the freedom of their faith. Awareness of the times, awareness of the decisions, awareness as we vote, awareness as we pray that whoever we put in office, there are going to be consequences to our favor or to uh, against us. But we need to have an awareness of the times. The Apostle Paul says if you want to be armor of light, you've got to understand the darkness and penetrate that darkness with your light. So those separatists, those pilgrims came. If you go to the Capitol Rotunda, how many have been in the Capitol Rotunda of the U.S.? Well, a goodly number of you. So you have walked around, you looked at all that wonderful artwork, 
And you look at all that artwork, you say, what a bunch of funny clothes they wear in those days, and wonder who those people are, and what, you know, why do they choose those? I wanted to focus on one of the artworks that many of you are aware of, perhaps. And if you look, uh, really, to the left here, whoops, to the left there uh, of the doorway, yeah, to the left, you focus in on John Robinson. Now, of all the artwork they could have created and established in the Capitol building of U.S. government on government-owned land, you realize that that used to be a worship place? People used to worship there in the first uh, times of our, of our country. Well, John Robinson was one of the pieces of art. You see him there with his hands held out like this. John Robinson was a pastor who, uh, with a group of separatists, left England to go to Holland because they wanted to have free exercise of their faith. And as they were there in Holland, they were going to embark upon the Mayflower. John Robinson did not travel with them then. He was going to come later, but he couldn't then because of health issues. But John Robinson, the pastor, wrote them a letter. And this is what John, part of what he wrote. At first, we are daily to renew our repentance with our God, especially for our sins and occasions of such difficulty and danger lieth upon you. To a both more narrow search and careful reformation of your ways in his sight. And again, this gets a little cumbersome the way they used to write in those days. But lastly, whereas you are become a body politic, using amongst yourselves civil government and are not furnished with any persons of special eminency above the rest, there are no kings, even the presidents no better than us, to be chosen by you into the office of government, let your wisdom and godliness appear. Let your wisdom and godliness appear. As we choose those that are no better than us, but we choose to place into office those that will govern over us, we need to use wisdom. We need to come out of godliness. We need to have the the quality of the mind, the quality of the heart, the character of the heart, the character of the mind. We need to be able to think cautiously, carefully. We need to understand the times. We need to pick those people that will truly advance the cause that we want to promote, that we believe is honoring to God. So let your wisdom and godliness appear, not only in choosing such persons as do entirely love and will promote the common good, but also in yielding unto them all due honor and obedience in their lawful administration. So he writes this letter to these pilgrims who get on the Mayflower to cross the ocean to come to what they then called Plymouth. And as they landed in Plymouth, as they was traveling across the ocean, these many of them were, were true followers of Jesus Christ. And they had a passion for those reasons why they're going. You realize that this group of people was one of the first church plants from England to America. They went over to America to plant churches. We're trying to plant a church in Irvine. They wanted to plant a church in America from England. And as they went over, here is part of... And I don't know how much history we get today. I don't know how many historians teach in high school the Mayflower Mayflower Compact, but in 1620, as those believers were gathered together, and as they traveled across the ocean, as they landed upon Plymouth, this is part of what they wrote. Why did they come? Having undertaken for the glory of God an advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents and solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, 
covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. We go to advance the Christian faith. When you walk around the Capitol Rotunda and you see the myriad of scenes that are reflected of the Christian faith that you and I believe in and practice, here is the one. And every time anybody would look at John Robinson, right next to John Robinson on his right is John Carver, who was the first governor that landed in that place. This is what that image, that artwork, this statement is what this artwork should constantly be promoting. If we're to be light in a darkened world, we're not here to create a theocracy. We're not here to force everybody to be baptized to become Christians. That's not what they wanted. That's not what we want. But the undergirding of the reasons for these believers taking this risk to travel on the Mayflower to get over to America is so that they might advance the Christian faith. Are there a lot of negatives of the early uh, settlers? Absolutely there are. There's negatives about a lot of believers today. But it doesn't skirt the issue of what their passion was, what their compact was, the Mayflower Compact, and that you and I don't lose the essence of what was some of the undergirding and reasons for the country that we enjoy today. We're a lot of them deists. We're a lot of those that didn't really probably agree with our doctrine here at Calvary Church. Some of the great names that we know, probably so. But did a lot of them exercise a freedom of faith and promote the faith that you and I have? Absolutely they did. Don't get cynical based upon those who had just proclaimed them to be simply deist and they didn't really live their faith and they had slaves and they didn't. You look at their actions. You look at their actions in promoting faith that was Christian. And you will see that it's a predominant scene, a predominant motion that was underway. So in tribute to the 4th of July and Happy Birthday America, let's remember that we need to understand the times in which we live. What are those things that are going into darkness and what are those ways that we can bring light into a darkened world? You and I need to exercise our faith that brings greater light based upon wisdom and godliness of choosing those that would run and serve in this country. Moving on, the second thing that Paul talks about is this. We need to behave properly by putting aside the evil deeds of darkness. Once we understand the times in which we live, we know these things are part of the darkness and these things are part of the light. The Apostle Paul then goes on to state this. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Behave properly. Not as some sort of a moralism. You know, moralism where I do right so that God would be pleased, so that God would show me favor, so that God would bless my life, so that God would give me the job, so that God would give me more money. We don't do good deeds, behave properly, so God will somehow love me more and I'll be able to get the things I want in life. That's moralism. It's a legalism. It's, it's trying to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to behave properly by putting aside the darkness, and he's going to show us the power to make that happen in the third point. So putting that before us, what are those things in which we should behave properly? He, he has three, what I see as three categories in this text. And they're for real. He says, not in carousing and drunkenness. Secondly, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. And thirdly, not in strife and jealousy. And so let me break those down. Here's, 
Here's a way to look at this. And so I wanted to sort of frame it for us a little bit. Think about it in this way. The three areas that we need to lay aside. These are the areas that if it's happening in the church, we are spreading darkness, not light. If it's happening in the pastors, we're spreading darkness, not light. And so what are those three areas? The first area is this. Carousing and drunkenness. And here's how I frame that. I see in those three areas really sort of a counterfeit or a false pretension living. The counterfeit power or influence in our lives and its destructive effect. Paul, first of all, the, way, the phrasing of those three, three areas, the phrasing is not a carousing and drunkenness. Now let me go to the second one. But in this first one, it, to me it's a counterfeit influence. There are people who are being driven by this kind of lifestyle, that they're using alcohol as a means to help them get through life, as a means to relax, as a means to somehow uh, appease a, a very anxious heart. Somehow we're, lo- we're losing the power of what God wants to do when we become dependent upon some of the elements that the world can design and create. I always go back to a lot of passages, and we'll talk more about this next Sunday in Romans 14. But notice again this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel... It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Alcohol, drunkenness is a sin. Drinking of alcohol, it's harder to say it's a sin. But I do know that drinking of alcohol, when it becomes the influence in my life to help me calm down, to relax, I feel depressed and so I drink some, it's really depressant. And so I I become under this influence that is not guiding me properly. Drunkenness is a sin. In the state of California, 0.08 percentage of alcohol, I'm drunk. I may not be falling down drunk, but I'm drunk. How does a believer know when he or she has consumed enough alcohol to be .08? If you want to be technically, biblically correct, everybody who drinks alcohol should have some sort of a breathalyzer so that after so many Coors, after so many Heinekens, and you're watching a World Cup, and you start looking at how many bottles are still there after, the, after three hours of watching a little ball roll around this huge field. You start counting all those bottles up. You better have a breathalyzer because if it blows .09, you're living in sin. Right? Am I off on that? You're living in sin. That's drunk. Who determines drunkenness? It's not just fall down drunk. It's carousing. It's somehow, it's somehow using it. In fact, the word carousing, it comes out of athletic, athletic competition. Carousing. That I drink in an athletic com, uh, competition so that I can have more fun in doing that activity. Uh, I remember uh, a number of years ago when I was with the chaplains, uh, uh, or not the chaplain, but the Santa Ana PD, and uh, we went to the train station over here. And uh, the train pulls in, and there is a guy that is as drunk as could be. And turns out he's a, he was a CPA with Ernst & Young. So he's a button-down, you know, white shirt, tie, white-collar, good-income guy. But he went into L.A. with his friend so they could party on his birthday. It was his birthday. So he gets off the, the train, and it becomes difficult. 
In fact, it became so difficult that the trained people called the police, Santa Ana police, and I was riding with one of the officers. And we came to him, and he was so obstinate, it took five officers and Chaplain Dave to physically hold him down where the paramedics came with one of those uh, wooden boards and they put him on the wooden board and he was still resisting that and so one of the paramedics got out his duct tape and literally embalmed him like a mummy with that duct tape to hold him in place to take him over here to Western Med. I still remember watching this guy fight and quarrel and here's this button-down executive with Ernst and Young displaying what influence alcohol can have when there is not caution taken. And I hope he wasn't a, one of you. But uh, I hope he wasn't even a believer. I hope he needs Jesus to be transformed because it changes things. I was reading this last week that here is what's happening with young people today. Young women particularly Young women in college are getting drunk. Why are they getting drunk? According to the study that was done, young women in college are getting drunk so they can go out and have sex as much as they want because otherwise if they didn't get drunk and have sex, they're called a slut. That's what they said. We don't want to be called a slut, so they said, I could read the quotes, but one woman said, I go out and get drunk so I can have as much sex as I want so the next day, oh, I, yeah, I lay, get, went, had sex with this guy, but I was drunk. And I go, oh, yeah, okay. So drunkenness becomes sort of the apology tour for immoral sexual behavior and that it sort of lets you off the hook because you weren't responsible for your behavior. And so alcohol is becoming this influence that instead of being something that is wrong, it's something that is good because it dismisses responsibility. And that's the mindset. Those are the times in which we live where that is the influence that is taking place. Then there is a second counterfeit, and the counterfeit is counterfeit love. It goes from counterfeit power that believers in Rome were perhaps using in terms of alcohol and carousing. He says, I want to dismiss the darkness of counterfeit love. And so he then goes into not in sexual promiscuity, in sensuality. I want you to put that aside. Counterfeit love. We think that we're in love, but we're not in love. We're in love with the idea of being in love, and that's driving this passion. Uh, there is one author, I think his name is David Heft. He writes about a time when he was counseling a young man who was having lots of sex with lots of women. He says, I'm just driven by the passion of having sex with lots of women, and, and I just can't stop the passion. I can't stop the desire. It is there. It is so overwhelming for me. Well, David Heft then explained to him and counseled him in this way. If you're being tempted to have sex with that woman in the office, and I walked upside of you, and I said, here's $10,000 if you'll stop before you have sex with that woman. Would you stop before you have sex with that woman? He says, for $10,000? You bet I would. I'd stop right away. So David says, well, the problem is not sex. The problem is desire. What you need to do is to take the desire that is wrong and replace it with a desire that is right. Have a new influence in your life, a new power in your life. So you're no longer wanting to do what you shouldn't do. And what he went on to say is the power is Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a moment. 
that when the power of Christ and the power of righteousness is the supreme power that is a driving influence in my life, I'll stop the porn, I'll stop the adultery, I'll stop the premarital sex. In fact, did you realize, you know, the, the website Christian Mingle? Anybody seen that Christian Mingle? If you watch enough of Fox, you probably have seen Christian Mingle. Christian Mingle did a study amongst the Christian Mingle people trying to get online. And of the Christians on Christian Mingle, 68% have said they want to have premarital sex. That's Christian Mingle. So there is a passion. There is a desire for counterfeit love. We need to behave properly because those things destroy the light. They add darkness. And then finally, the darkness is seen. Oh, oh, let me bring you back to this. Forget about this verse. I love this verse. I showed this to you a few weeks ago, so I'm just going to remind you. If you want to overcome immoral thoughts, be it pornography, the woman in the office, the man in the office, the guy at 24-hour fitness, the girl at Goat's Gym, wherever it may be, Job 31.1, best verse in the Bible, at least for today. I have made a covenant with my eyes, Job said. How then could I gaze at a virgin? You make a covenant with your eyes. The covenant's with your spouse. And if you're gazing at someone who is sexually attractive to you, then stop and make that covenant back to the spouse that you're committed to. Or even if you're unmarried, don't gaze. The word gaze, remember, it means to discern, to study, to watch carefully. Singular verse that could transform adulterers around the world. Stop gazing at what is not properly yours. It could be used for material possessions as well. So, make a covenant that I won't gaze. I'll stop before it goes down that road. And then finally, there's counterfeit relationships and their destructive effect that takes place, not in strife and jealousy. And another time we'll cover that in a little bit more detail. But there are some families, there are some marriages, there are some relationships that are constantly driven by strife and jealousy. They just are always seemingly in conflict. And it sort of feels normal to them. Aren't all relationships like this? Aren't all marriages like that? I mean, we got dear friends of ours that, that, uh, that their marriage is filled with strife. It's filled with all kinds of strife. And you know what? It goes all the way back to alcohol. As soon as alcohol becomes involved in some marriages, you result in strife. As soon as alcohol becomes involved in some marriages, you involve, it, it, it uh, really results in sort of sensuality and sexual promiscuity. As soon as alcohol gets involved, it becomes that foundation that it constantly erodes away the healthy relationships that Christ calls us to. And how do you get over that stuff? How do you replace the bad desire of those areas? You replace it with something good. You don't get rid of bad behavior and just sort of then hang out there with some sort of a limbo. You sort of have this, this uh, void that is there. God says, I don't want a void where you get rid of bad behavior like all these three areas of counterfeit power, counterfeit love, and counterfeit relationships. I want to take the void that is there and fill it with something else. I want to fill you with something good, 
So he says, be empowered by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for sin. He says, be filled by the power of Holy Put him on. Wear him. Let him be part of your life. Let everybody know that he is the one that you wear in life. In fact, everywhere you work, wherever you play, you should let people know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It'll begin to transform people's lives that are around you. And, and here's the thing. It will also increase the accountability that I have to behave properly. And, you know, that's why, you know, people find out that I'm a pastor. First, I'm over at the, the police station because I wear this thing that says chaplain. Now, my behavior has to really rise up. When I'm at home, I can be a slob. But when you're out there and they know what you're... And I don't really mean that, sort of. But when you're out there and they know who you represent, when you're friends at school, your friends at work, your friends in the neighborhood. They know who you are. You then put on Christ in a way that says, I have to live to a standard that Jesus has set before me. We want to rise to that standard and honor Christ in all that we do and all that we say. We put Him on. That's why it says in Romans thirteen fourteen. but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. See, when you put on Christ, there's no provision for lust. It's, its desire overwhelms that desire. The desire of Christ should overwhelm the desire for lust. Good illustration of that. This particular passage, Romans 13, uh, 13 and 14, is the transformational, are the transformational verses that changed Augustine's life. You know, Augustine way back in the 300s, 386 B.C., or 80, he was saved. Augustine has written books today that we're still reading here 15, 1600 years later. There's not a lot of authors writing books today that in 2,000 years people are going to be referring to. But Augustine is one of those guys. And what saved Augustine in this struggle was Romans 13. Augustine's struggle as a young man, a little teenager, his mother, Monica, was so concerned about her son who is not, as a teenager, late teens, not walking with Jesus Christ, has no regard. In fact, he had a 13-year affair with another woman. Had a son as a result of that 13-year affair with another woman. Eventually was able to get married to another woman. But his mother was so concerned because he was so caught up in those things that the Apostle Paul was saying, behave properly in. And he was so caught up in the lust and the sex of those days. And as a result, he went to the spiritual struggle. And then God divinely intervened in Augustine's life. As he quotes some, I'm going to quote Augustine from one of the things that he wrote about that particular situation. As he writes in some of his literature, books like the Confessions, he wrote this, I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart, when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. He says, I think the voice is telling me to pick up the Bible to read. I didn't know what passage to look up. I didn't know what portion of God's Word to read, but I was feeling this voice to tell me to pick up and read the Bible. So this is where he continues on. So quickly I returned to the bench where Ellipsius was sitting, for there I had put down the Apostles' book when I had left there. I snatched it up, opened it, 
and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes fell first. Of all the passages in the Bible, what passage did he turn to? He turned to Romans 13. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, what we just read, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Became a follower of Christ. The desires of lust were gone as he put on Jesus Christ and trusted in him. That's where God wants to bring us to, to have that kind of relationship where the transformation is occurring. And the question could be and should be asked, and this is the question. If, you're, if we were dialoguing and we're sitting one-on-one in a room, here's what you should ask me. Dave, how do I put on the Lord Jesus Christ? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. So here is the answer as to how you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got it on the back side of the outline. You can look at it there. I'm going to flash it on the screen very quickly here because you can't just go through this in a six-step process and suddenly it's fixed. But if you want to have the kind of transformation that Augustine had in his transformative power of Christ, you turn to Colossians 3, 10 through 17. And in that particular passage, the Apostle Paul talks about putting on Jesus Christ. In that particular passage, he guides us to a journey where the journey where Jesus becomes more real in my life and His power overcomes the power of the darkness. His power overcomes counterfeit power. His power overcomes counterfeit love. His power overcomes counterfeit relationships. And how do you do that? Number one, he says, renewed to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do I have a relationship with Christ now? How do I need to renew that? What do I need to confess? What do I need to commit to now and say, Lord, take charge of my life. I've been behaving improperly. I want to behave properly, but I don't want to have a void. I want to do it for the right reasons. So Christ, come into my life. Refresh me. Renew me. Secondly, he says in verse 11, renewal were in which there is no distinction. No distinction between people. God, give me the eyes that you have for the people that are around me. Help me no longer to look at that person in a lustful way, but to look at that person in a way that you see them that is loving and kind. Help me to have no distinctions about people, about good or bad, about ugly or pretty, or about this color or that ethnic or that, that wealth or that position in life. Help me to have no more distinctions with people, but help me to have healthy, loving relationships. Empower me for that. Give me your eyes, Christ. Thirdly, focus your heart on these things. God, I ask for this. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Every day, begin your day saying, Lord, focus my heart on this. Give me the power to do it. And then renew your relationships. 
where there is lack of compassion, where there is brokenness in the past, where there are those things that are not as they should be. I go to those people asking for forgiveness, forgiving each other, he says, and put on love. And so I begin to renew the broken relationships even as I replace them with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then I pray for the peace of Christ and the Word of God to grow in my heart. That every day I am praying to God, every day the Word of Christ is growing in my heart. And as that Word grows in my heart, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Two prayer requests. Let the peace and let the Word of Christ every day grow in me. Fill me fresh every day. And then finally, I pursue the mission. What is the mission? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to, through Him to God the Father. And let me just challenge you with this. If you're not one who is behaving properly, I challenge you every single day. You read Colossians three ten through 17. You take those things that I put on the back of that outline and you say, God, this is what I want. Like Augustine, like Augustine. Change my desires. Change my passion. Change my purpose. Give me who Christ is so I live like Christ to the world around me. Then I put on the armor of light. Then I truly am a light. And I'm living free in a very darkened world. Communion is an opportunity for you and me to have a, a, a re renewed relationship with Jesus. And even as the, our folks prepare the elements and bring them into this room, I'm going to invite you to spend time looking over that. Say, God, what of these elements that it means to put on Christ, what of these elements do I need to work on? Where, where is it you want to prick my conscience? What are those things that I've gotten off base? Where have I sort of skewed off in my relationships with people and the counterfeit power and the, the counterfeit love? Where do you want me to work first? It begins by renewing with Jesus Christ. Communion. The cup represents the blood of Jesus so that I can be forgiven. The bread represents the body of Jesus Christ. And frankly, you and I, we should be the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And so that body, it should be reflected in what we do and what we say. We carry the light of who Christ is to those around us. So as we bring these elements before us, use this time to say, Lord, help me to put on Christ fresh and new. And take these elements of Colossians and say, Lord, burn it into my heart that I would be your follower. Let me pray for this bread as it now is about to be passed. Father God, we thank you for this. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of Christ that doesn't leave a void behind when, when we behave properly. We don't want to just put aside things and then do it for the wrong reasons. God, we want to put it aside because we've replaced it with something so much better in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to capture that and make it part of our lives. Father, we bring this element of the bread and thank you for it as we remember who you are and what you did in Jesus' body. And we pray it in his name. Amen.